Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, we start here closer to home this morning and the, the collective bargaining now on between the John Horgan government here in B.C., and public sector unions. Check out the full-page newspaper ad they had out on the weekend. A lot of the major public sector unions running this ad on the weekend in the headline. They've seen it all. Workers across BC's public sector have been on the front lines of the pandemic, floods, fires, the poison drug crisis, but they're being left behind. Let's discuss now with my guest, Stephanie Smith, Stephanie is the president of the BCGEU Union. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Mike. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And it's a fascinating time here for the public sector unions in our province as they go into negotiations. Tell me, what's the, what is the status with the BCGEU? Is your contract expired or is it expiring soon? Yes. Yeah, so, um, as you, as, uh, you know, we, we have over, uh, almost 83,000 members. They're just in about every economic sector in the province. So we have about 85 to 90% of our members who will be in bargaining this year. But the, the big sectoral agreements, the ones that cover our members in public service, in community health, in healthcare, uh, in community social services, they expire on March 31st of this year. So coming up very quickly. Okay, your ad in the newspaper on the weekend reads, as the cost of living skyrockets, these workers are seeing their paychecks shrink. Tell me about that. You're looking for a big wage hike? Well, what we're looking for and, and what we think is very reasonable is we're looking for cost of living adjustments. I mean, I don't have to tell you or your listeners just how expensive things are getting, how how cost of living is skyrocketing, you know, rates of inflation. So we know, you know, MLA wage increases are tied to cost of living and, and have inflation protections. Um, just announced that our lowest uh, wage earners, minimum wage, are going to be tied to uh, cost of living adjustments and inflation protections. And we right. think all workers deserve that, including BCG members. Okay, so the inflation rate in our country right now running around five percent so is that the the raise you're looking for a five percent annual raise well again uh you know we are still at the bargaining table so i can't get into specifics around that's, proposals, that's, the, ball, that's the ballpark though right that's what we're talking well, yeah, about cost of living adjustments yep yeah cost of living means you match the inflation rate roughly right well, that's what uh, our members have said they deserve. They've fallen behind in the last year of this agreement. And, you know, our members took years of zeros, um, and we fell further and further and further behind. And so um, our members over the last two years, uh, as as the newspaper had said, you know, they've they've really, really learned their worth. They know their value. They know their contribution to our province, and they know that they are going to be incredibly important in the economic recovery as we move forward. We need to attract the best and the brightest, and the only way to do that is to have wages that attract people to these jobs. 
Speaking of Stephanie Smith, she's the president of the BCGEU, and we're talking about contract negotiations here now between the BC government and their unionized workforce. So, Stephanie, if we're looking at maybe a 5% wage hike a year here, what would you say to the people listening right now who would be who would pay for an agreement like this with their tax dollars who might be thinking, wow, I didn't get a 5% raise this year? Is That sounds a little excessive to me. Well, I, I mean, again, we don't begrudge anyone a living wage. And in fact, you know, um, a lot of the analysis of this year's budget would show that in fact, what we're asking is not unreasonable and can be afforded without raising taxes. And I just want to point out, Mike, that, you know, working people uh, who have disposable income spend that money in the local economy. You know, people aren't going to the hairdresser or, you know, hiring the local contractor to do renovations or, or zhuzh up their homes a little bit when they're not sure that they can meet their obligations through rent or mortgage or, I mean, let's be honest, even put gas in their car. So, um, you know, this is, this is how things work. Uh, our working people spend their money in the local economies and that's good for everybody. What about like a 5% raise and typically we're looking at three-year contracts, like three-year deals. So let's say it's 5%, could be more than that over a three-year period. I mean, you're talking potentially billions of dollars in cost pressures to government. How are they supposed to find that money without raising taxes? Borrow it or... Well, as I said, uh, you know, um, first of all, I, you know, the term of the agreement is always a, a part of the discussion at the table. So again, can't get into specifics around that. And, you know, we've seen everything historically from one-year deals to three-year to four-year. Um, and so again, term of agreement is always part of the negotiations. What, uh, what is yes. your, what is your feeling heading into these negotiations? Do you think these are going to be tough negotiations? Do you think these are going to be difficult? Could we be looking at public sector job action or strikes if you don't get a deal? Well, you know, um, obviously the best place to get a deal is at the bargaining table. We are currently uh, on a break with government um, because their initial wage proposal, uh, I'll be perfectly frank and honest, um, was too far away from what our members have told us they want to see in their agreement. Um, what I can say is we are prepared for any outcome. We're ready to get back to the table uh, and look forward to trying to get a deal before the expiration. Um, there are some outstanding issues. However, if the alternative is what we're looking at, we're prepared for that too. We'll, we'll go to our members and, and we'll see what they want us to do. How far apart are you? Well, it, it, it's a gap. <laughs> it's a gap for how sure. Big, how big is the gap? <laughs> well, again, I, you know, I hate saying this over and over again, but because we can't get into the specifics of the proposals, because we are still in bargaining, um, but, you know, we use the word chasm in one of our releases, and I, I think that's a fair, fair assessment. A chasm. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a chasm. Okay, so that is a, a big gap at the bargaining table. Speaking to Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU, the newspaper ad that you put out on the weekend was not only your union, Stephanie, but a lot of the other unions in BC, the Health Employers Union, the QPBC, which represents support workers in schools and elsewhere. Uh, the BC Teachers Federation was in there too, right? Yes, yes, yeah, okay. they were. Yeah. Okay, so it's interesting to see the teachers union teaming up with you guys here on, on this too. So all of these unions are at the table right now? Boy, that's a lot of unions bargaining at the same time. Absolutely, uh, and it's even more than that. <clears throat> Pardon me, uh, here in BC we have bargaining associations. Um, they were legislated uh, 
decades ago. And, and so, uh, like, for example, at the uh, healthcare facilities, you will have HEU, HSA, QP, BCGEU, and, and UFCWs at the table with us on our bargaining associations. I know I'm missing, you know, PEA. Uh, yes, this is a big, big bargaining year for public sector unions. Okay, well, we'll be following it closely, to say the least. Thank you very much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. All right, let's talk about gas prices now. The pain at the pumps excruciating, especially if you have a long daily commute. You must drive for work. What if you run a trucking company or any other business on wheels? Yeah, you're getting hammered with those sky-high gas prices right now. Will the B.C. government step in here and offer some relief? That's what they did next door in Alberta, cutting the provincial gas tax by 13 cents a liter. Will John Horgan do something similar here in British Columbia? I think it's pretty clear that the BC government looking at some kind of relief for drivers right now. Have a listen to what Horgan had to say the other day to Global News. I don't want to give uh, people false hope until we've gone through our process. Uh, We are working on a plan for drivers and we'll have more to say about that. We want to make sure we're going through our processes within government so we're making the right choices and not making it worse quite frankly okay okay so they're working on a plan it could be as early as this week we hear about some sort of gas price relief for british columbians will it be a gas tax cut i doubt it this doesn't seem to be in horgan's dna he doesn't cut taxes what about a rebate check from icbc that could be more likely. Let's check in with Kathleen Cook now, Provincial Affairs Director at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business in Canada. Hi, Kathleen. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Are you hearing a lot about high gas prices from small business these days? Yeah, we sure are. Actually, about half of small business owners are telling us that, that rising fuel costs are a major cost constraint that's limiting their ability to grow and be successful. Yeah, what would you like to see from the government here in BC? Well, it, it sounds like the BC government's planning some kind of announcement. I yeah. provide cost relief at the pump, but if they're looking at a rebate scheme, I guess my caution there is the government needs to ensure that small businesses are included in any kind of rebate scheme. Because often what you'll see with these is consumers will benefit and businesses will be left out. But given everything that small, small businesses in BC have dealt with over the last couple of years, I, I think it's critical that they're included. Right. How could small businesses be left out of, of, a, of a, an auto insurance rebate? Well, if you're at the type of business who doesn't, um, you're still impacted by rising fuel prices, for example, even if your business doesn't uh, include filling up vehicles, right? Because it drives up the cost of trucking goods in and stocking your shelves. It drives up the cost of getting your goods to the market. And there's a limit to how much of this cost that a business can pass on to their customers. So we need to make sure that that's factored in when the government devises whatever kind of cost relief scheme they come up with. Yeah. Do you think, uh, what do you think about what they did in Alberta, cutting the provincial gas tax there by 13 cents a litre? Yeah, that's certainly one one option. It sounds like um, Premier Horgan's ruled that out. Um, and, and so far, it looks like Alberta is the only province that's moved in that direction. But I think small businesses would look favorably upon any kind of relief at the pumps right now. Yeah, a lot of people will point at a gas tax cut like that and say, well, it's not even worth considering because if you cut the gas taxes, the gas companies will just jack up their prices anyway just to fill that margin. If they see the taxes have gone down, well, well, they'll just raise the price of gas and you won't experience any savings. What do you think of that argument? 
Yeah, I've heard that argument made as well, and that's where you know maybe a rebate scheme is a, is another good alternative. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. Okay, we're following it closely. We got Dave Earl on the line as well. Dave is the president and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Hi, Dave. Hi, Mike. What are you hearing from trucking companies in BC with regard to high gas prices right now? Oh, like like everybody, we're watching it closely, and uh, you know these carriers are are having to pay more. Uh, which means, Mike, uh, Kathleen's point was exactly spot on. Her members are paying more, you're paying more, and I'm paying more. Uh, it's a flow-through cost. Uh, you know, freight moves basically one of two ways, either under contract, and I don't know any long-standing contract that doesn't have a fuel surcharge process built into it, uh, or the spot market, where a shipper goes to the market and says, who wants to move this for a given rate to a given place? And both of those uh, costs, uh, you know, that include diesel, uh, it's the number one consumable cost in our industry. It's about 30 to 50% of all operating costs. Right. And that fuel surcharge, does that, is that a surcharge that moves up and down according to the price of gas typically in a typical contract? Yes. And it's really transparent. The parties will usually negotiate and say, this is the metric we're going to use. They, they pick a diesel price index from somewhere across the continent or in BC or whatever it may be. And say, we'll visit either weekly, biweekly, you know, daily, whatever it may be, uh, you know, for any freights that, that moves. And then uh, the price that they charge moves accordingly. And it does go down. Um, you know, it goes up and down. Um, but it's that spot market where things can get really volatile. What happens if you have a, a, a truck driver who is an independent owner-operator, maybe a guy who owns his own truck, would he have an opportunity to charge a fuel surcharge, or does that come out yeah. of his own pocket? And that's where it gets really volatile, because if they're in that spot market, uh, they're competing against everybody else uh, who's looking to move loads. And right now, there's a lot more freight-chasing trucks than there are trucks available. Uh, so it's not a bad time uh, to be an independent operator. But if you're on a popular route with a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going you may find you're getting pinched because the rates aren't moving quickly enough to keep up with the cost of fuel speaking of dave earl president of the bc trucking association about high gas prices when you've got truck companies trucking companies are getting slammed with these high gas prices that that fuel surcharge goes up does that get passed on to the consumer eventually in in the form of like higher food costs or higher higher costs for everything it gets passed on somewhere, Mike. So some of the companies, I mean, ultimately, some level of the cost gets borne by the trucking company, sometimes by the independent operator, sometimes by the shipper, and sometimes by the receiver. But ultimately, it's you and me that pay. Yeah, and what do you want to see from government? It sounds like the John Horgan government here in BC is clearly working on something. He's not going to put out a hint like that, that relief is on the way if it's not. So we know something is coming. What would you like to see? Well, it's a tough one because, I mean, transportation costs are agnostic. Um, we all pay them when we all pay equally, but not all of us have the ability uh, to pay equally. So government's in a bit of a pickle. Um, again, Kathleen's point and your point earlier about, you know, reducing uh, taxes. Does that get built into margins? Do they disappear into the price at the pump or, you know, how does that work? So, you know, government has its work cut out in terms of how are they going to step into this market? Um, we're always very, very leery of government regulation and oversight stepping into the free market. Uh, when you start talking about prices and all that type of thing, we kind of you know, furrow our brow and say, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way. Uh, and we're confident the government will find some way to give those that need relief some relief. It sounds like they're very hesitant to cut gas taxes, to say the least. 
but ICBC is sitting on a mountain of money over there right now. Ever since they switched to no-fault auto insurance, they've just been raking in profit. So they got like billions, like literally billions of dollars are sitting on over there. It sounds like the government might do an ICBC rebate and say this is the relief for you from high gas prices. If if that is what happens, is, is that a help to truckers? Well, any time that a check comes to an individual operator, absolutely, it's going to be a help. But that bigger picture question, Mike, is an important one. Um, you know, do we want to see our public insurance dollars that are there for, you know, basically, if you will, that reserve, that rainy day uh, to insulate against big rate hikes in the future? Do we want to see this for the crisis of today? And it's a crisis. Like, let's be clear. And again, it's that real dangerous hard situation to be in to say, wow, you know, where do we find the ability to pull relief from? You know, do we do it now uh, and risk the future or do we bank on the future and find a different way now? Okay, we're watching it closely. There may be something on it later this week. We'll see what happens. Dave, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the housing crisis out there right now. We've talked a lot about this on the show. And one of the big challenges here is the restricted supply of new housing. Now think about this now, supply and demand. We need to build more stuff. We need more housing. The demand is huge, but so many builders are finding out when they go to their local municipality, they're met with delays and red tape and costly bureaucracy and the NIMBY factor. Nearby residents, they don't like your development. They don't want, uh, they don't want it in their neighborhood. The local city council caves in, votes the project down. Now check this out. In Victoria, a 14-unit condo development, four stories, proposed on Oak Bay Avenue, bedroom community of Victoria, four-story condo, in the works for nine years. The developer, been planning to build this project, for nine years, 14 units. This is a very modest condo development on the main street in Oak Bay. Uh, you take a look at some of the details on it. Had uh, electric car powered stations. They got bike racks. They had a, a little park on the roof. Uh, it looked like a, it looks like a nice development. They they're going to save an, an old Gary Oak tree on the front lawn. Nine years. It gets voted down by Oak Bay City Council last week after nine years. Is this emblematic of the problem that we're talking about here? Let's check in with Paul Sullivan now from the Business Tax Alliance. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Paul, when you hear a story like that, like a condo project, this is not a high rise. This is a four-story condo on a main drag of a community. You know, it's got a four-story building on one side. It's got a four-story building on the other side. Gets voted down after nine years by a local city council. Is that the type of story that you're hearing in a lot of places right now? Well, we're hearing it all over the place. But, you know, this is like the Guinness Book of World Records, you know, nine years to get rejected. You know, this does nothing but sends a huge chill down the backs of home builders and financers and that just clearly says oak bay is not open for business we are not going to be part of the housing affordability crisis that this region's facing 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a municipality that's come in for a lot of criticism for resistance to any any kind of densification or, or, or building up, even on the main corridors. I mean, it's not like we're talking this was on a residential side street where this project was proposed. This is like on the main drag of, the, of that village there. That's right. You know, we got, you know, jurisdictions like Langford, just just close by. They're delivering 5,000 homes in the past five years. They've delivered more homes in Victoria, Saanich, Oak Bay and Esquimalt all combined. You know, it's where should our our higher levels of government be investing in municipalities? It is not Oak Bay. How about in the lower mainland? I mean, are you hearing similar stories from builders in, in Metro Vancouver that they want to get something built and they're running into roadblocks? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it takes roughly two years to put up a pretty significant building with hundreds of units. We're taking five years to approve them. You know, there's in the city of Vancouver, there's 25 steps you have to go through to get a permit in five to seven years. You know, contrast that to something like Langley. Their average approval time is seven months. It's stunning. Hmm. Why do we have this divergence in these jurisdictions? Uh, you know, we want to build where jobs are. We want to build where transportation is. And it seems like those locations are having the, the biggest difficulty approving projects. Okay. When you hear about these type of delays in some of these municipalities, I'm, I'm sure if some of those local leaders were, were here right now, they would say, look, we're, we're approving lots of housing in our community. We want to be careful. We want to preserve the, the integrity of, of these communities uh, before we, we, we got to make sure this fits with our local community plan uh, before we just rubber stamp these type of projects. And I, I, I get that. I mean, everyone can get that. But why do you think in some cases, they're meeting these years-long delays, in, in some cases, just to have projects voted down. Why well, is that? You know, I, 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 it's bureaucracy. We know it's bureaucracy. How have we been funding the bureaucracy? By all the demand-side measures. We've been taxing all the property owners, developers. You know, 26% of the cost of a new home is taxes and, and, and city levies. So we're spending all this time creating processes and, 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 and steps to achieve the housing, and we're not getting it built. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, all we're doing is building the size of our government. Speaking of Paul Sullivan, Business Tax Alliance, about delays in getting housing built. He had a 14-unit condo just voted down in suburban Victoria after nine years of planning. W- would you say, what about the NIMBY factor, Paul? Like, if you have the neighbors of a project... Oh, I don't want a con- wait a minute. I don't want a condo development going on being built up the street from me and the extra traffic that that's going to bring. Forget it. I'm going to fight against it. Do you find that? I mean, that's kind of understandable in a way, but do you find yeah, that I mean, a lot of these local councils will cave into that kind of pressure? Well, you know, that that's probably where our higher level governments need to step up the pressure on municipalities because a lot of these densifying areas are around transportation corridors. And, you know, let's take West Broadway as the next example and all the folks in kits and whatnot. They're not going to want the, the density either, but it just makes sense. So the, the, there's no problem selling homes right now. And, and if you need to move yourself into a location that brings the peace of mind you want for your living environment, that has to happen. We, we, we are a geographically restricted region. We have no yeah. choice. Yeah. What would you say to listeners who are listening right now and might think, well, wait a minute, this guy's a developer. He's in the real estate business. So, you know, I mean, these guys are just in it to, to make money. So, I mean, is there a way that we can get new houses built more efficiently get them on the market like i agree with you i think we need to build stuff 
but we also need to build homes that people can afford, right? Like, how do we, how do you square yeah. that circle? Well, you know, I, I was reading this morning about Langford, and, and, and it's a great example of a strategy. They have a rent-to-own housing program. 500 bucks a month of your rent goes towards the down payment in the next phase of the project to buy a home. Furthermore, the city of Langford gives you a $5,000 government grant to buy your first home. So, you know, there are good ideas that are emerging out of this marketplace, and we can force developers and home builders, which I'm not one, um, to yeah. build what the market wants. Um, it's called density. And you can describe yeah. and, and define what that density is and what purpose and who it's going to serve. So you just need to in, induce that form of development rather than tax and, and create hurdles in seven, nine years to get it approved. Okay, do you think that we've been talking about this for for many years i mean i get kind of deja vu talking about these issues because the the same issues have been going around and around for so long and we hear a lot about municipalities that uh are putting up roadblocks to getting new housing built and approved and on the market so there have been calls for a long time for the province to step in the provincial government to do um, some sort of maneuver here to get this going maybe overrule some of these municipalities, maybe, yeah, you maybe you're talking about infringing on their jurisdiction, but in order to get this housing built, if the local municipality can't get it done, should the province step in? Now, have a listen to this, Paul. This is David Eby, the provincial housing minister, talking about there's not enough housing getting built. Have a listen to what he says here. We're talking about 25,000 new residents in a three-month period in our province, and that is only going to continue. And at the same time, there were just over 6,000 active listings in December in the, uh, in the MLS listing service. So things are only going to get worse unless we start building the housing. Right. So we need to build more stuff. We need to build more homes. Should the province mm-hmm. step in here to get this done? Well, it, it, it's going to have to be the answer, I guess, because, you know, each municipality in the Metro Vancouver set housing targets as part of the Metro Vancouver growth strategy, and only Richmond and the city and city of North Vancouver achieved their strategy, their growth targets. Every other municipality is 20 to 60 percent below the, the number of homes they said they would deliver in, in the past five-year period. So, you know, if you're not going to deliver homes, you're not going to get government funding for infrastructure and civic works that need doing in all these jurisdictions. So I'm, I'm of the mind that we need to have an incentive program um, where you get, you get funding and it's a per door amount. And if you don't b- deliver homes, you don't get any transfer payments and it's going to be an wow. incentive based program. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking housing affordability with my guest, Paul Sullivan, we got a ton of phone calls here, John and Langley. Hi, John, go ahead. Hi, how are you doing? First time caller. Cool. Go ahead. The uh, t- township of Langley and, and Morning municipalities are similar. So you build a house that's designed by, you know, one of these design companies that design homes all over the lower mainland, houses that been have been approved many times. They're the same designs. Everything's the same. So the city gives you a list. You need an engineer for this. You need a designer for this. All kinds of things because they want to wash their hands of being responsible. So you give them the list. It takes six months. Um, you have uh, done all your homework, and then it sits on a pile. And then you wait a year 
to get a permit to build a house that has been approved many times within the municipality. I'm not talking something, you know, that is really hard, like, you know, on a bank of a mountain or whatever. Just simple homes. Takes forever. So I bought 20 acres in Langley. Yeah. I need to I need to start doing something with that land, but I can't do anything unless the city puts in a driveway for me. They won't put in a driveway. Um, no, they will put in the driveway, and now I've waited a year to get that driveway put in. If I hired in a company to come in, it would be done in three, four months, even if I get it engineered. But they won't let you do that. They okay, have Paul. to service all their stuff. Paul, you got any advice for them? Yeah, well, no, I, I feel his frustration, and a lot of home builders are in the same boat. And, you know, last show we talked about, you know, the Vancouver special. Why don't we yeah. come up with cookie-cutter designs that uh, maximize, you know, density under existing zoning and move forward and get them built? And we can even have certified professionals. And municipalities don't take any risk in, in housing development, any of the engineering and all, all of the... Uh, all these things can be approved by a certified professional in from the private sector. The city just signs off. Yeah. So pre- pre-approved zoning, pre-approved housing designs, let's get them built. Well, sure, yeah. It doesn't sound like rocket science, really, to me. Let's go to Dave in Kitsilano. Hey, Dave. Hey, gentlemen. Good morning, gentlemen. That was that perfectly said. That's exactly what they got to do. They got to cut out the red tape. It, for instance, whether it's Point Grey or Oak Bay, the municipality says no to affordable housing along the SkyTrain line across from, you know, St. Augustine School. They don't want it. NIMBYism, Oak Bay, they don't want this. You know what? Evie's got to step in and say, hey, you're not going to play hardball? Boom. We're taking it. This is what's happening. I'm sorry. What do you yeah, think? no, that, that's interest. It's an interesting point. And EB, the provincial housing minister, has kind of suggested this sort of Bigfoot tactic. We might come in here and force you to do it. I mean, I've heard other pro- governments say the same thing, though, Paul, and they and they don't do it. The previous liberal government pondered doing the same thing, and they never did. But your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, the thing about density is there's room for everybody to win. When you bring in density and you bring in more housing and amenities, you create value. So you get land lift. And that land lift goes to the existing property owners. They win. It goes to a home builder because they're going to get density. They win. And and municipalities get taxes. They get DCLs. It's a win-win-win. So the NIMBYism has to be dealt with through appreciation and the opportunity to, to do other things. Yeah. People choose locations in high-density urban locations. They must accept change. Let's go to Bob on the line in South Surrey. Hi, Bob. Go ahead. Hey, um, I suggest you maybe get in touch with Doug Tennant at the Semiamu Housing Society. They've got a massive property that is currently nonprofit housing on the corner of 152nd and 20th Avenue. The entire area is zoned as six stories. They put forward a proposal to the city council to have one building be six stories, but they just wanted an extra, I think it's nine feet on the zoning. And they wanted to do that to get the density, but to get all the other buildings at like two to three stories to meet the the, the need of the, the, um, the community. Yeah. And Doug said, we don't need those people here. Like, it's not social housing, it's non-profit housing. Is this, like, is, is just, this Surrey? Surrey you're talking about? Yeah, so Surrey, Surrey. Uh, like in the White Rock Semiamu area. And yeah, I yeah. Mean, literally across the street, it's zoned for 20 stories. Like, it's just nuts. Paul Sullivan, your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's the same old, same old. Until we until we put some requirements in place for municipalities to deliver 
housing counts, uh, we're not going to get done. And like I say, you, you can set targets. I think that this is what the provincial government's thinking about. If we're going to invest, we're going to set a target. You don't make your target. You don't get yeah. your infrastructure. You don't get your transfers. And, and it's probably the way it should be done. James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Uh, thanks for taking my call again, guys. The only thing that I'm concerned about, you're talking about chips, giving back rebates for to, to, to buyers to buy houses. Well, those rebates come out of the tax bill. Now, I'm all for affordable housing. I'm not all for affordable housing that to pay for so somebody else can afford their housing. And like, okay. why, why don't they come? Why don't they come up with something like um, a basis where you put in some on, some of your own personal equity, where you go in and help build the house, like Habitat for Humanity, where you put something into it to get something out of it. Okay, James, thank you for the call. We're out of time, Paul. I want to thank you for yours, though. It's always great to have you on. We got more calls we couldn't get to, so we'll just That's have to have you back. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the State of the Union when it comes to our friends to the south of us in the United States. There is a lot of turmoil in the United States these days. There's toxic political division in the country. There seems to be a simmering undercurrent of anger and potentially violence. I mean, you think back to the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol what a shocking event that was for so many of us. Well, for my next guest, maybe that event was not so shocking. Journalist Stephen Marsh. He's been predicting a second American Civil War for some time. And he writes about it in his recent book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he joins me now. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Congratulations on the book, which I find fascinating. And you certainly have touched a nerve here with this one. I've seen so much reaction to this book from everywhere, from the left, from the right. A lot of people talking about your book. So I'm, I'm grateful for you to come on and talk about it. Let me ask you how you got into this. Like, How did you come up with this idea to, to write a book about a, a topic like this? Well, um, I was sent by a Canadian magazine to cover the 2016 inauguration, the Trump inauguration. And, um, you know, that had a real kind of fall of Rome vibe. Like at one point I was standing on a limousine and then people lit it on fire. And then I was walking with between sort of anarchists on the one side and then far right groups on the other. And they looked like they were just about to you know, engage in a street fight and the police between them had sort of, you know, couldn't really do anything. And yeah, I mean, once I came back from that event, I was sort of like, well, it's time to sort of figure out what's going wrong in America and see where this is all headed because it seems very dangerous. Yeah. And when you talk about the next civil war in the United States, you're not talking necessarily about a a political war or, or the culture war that we see in America. Are you talking about an actual, like, shooting war that could break out? Well, I mean, what I'm talking about is asymmetrical warfare. So, you know, it wouldn't look like the first Civil War with, like, gray coats and blue coats on either side and, like, lines of supply and so on. I mean, I'm talking about insurgency. I'm talking about, you know, political political violence at a, uh, you know, the normalization of political violence. And, you know, the sort of line between what's just political violence and what's Civil War um, you know, it, it's very kind of hard to determine. The expert opinion is that it's about a thousand 
um, deaths a year. Um, so America's already, you know, sort of hovering around 100 political deaths a year from political violence. And that's enough to put it in the category of civil strife already. So, um, yeah, it's definitely not, uh, you know, symmetrical warfare I'm talking about here. It's insurgency, it's terrorism, it's, it's, it's mainstreaming of political violence. Right, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the research you did for the book. You interviewed a lot of people on the sort of hard right of the American political spectrum, these kind of like these militia group types. Who are these people, yeah. and what was it like to hang out with them and talk to them? Well, I mean, you know, to be honest, I really enjoyed their company. Um, <laughs> I, really? I know that's not probably the answer you expect, but they were all... They're all very nice guys and very friendly to me. I mean, being a white male definitely helped uh, that as- that aspect of it completely. But you know, they're they believe in a kind of messianic vision of freedom that's totally. I mean, you know, you go to these guys and you say like, "Well, what do you consider slavery?" And they're like, "Well, paying property taxes is slavery." And yeah. you know, they just get they, they just get into a you know a vision of freedom that's just completely impossible to exist on this planet. And, uh, yeah, they, they have, they, they, while I found them nice guys, I found their politics pretty toxic. I mean, that, then there are other, you know, it's a hugely diverse group of people in the sense that there are lots of different political ideologies. So there are also white power people and white nationalists and Nazis and, you know, and so on. It's a, it's a, it's a large different group of different ideas yeah. out there. What do you think is sort of fueling and stoking that kind of anger? In, in America that you think could turn into kind of like a an insurgency as you described it like why is that happening what's what's fueling it I, I mean to me there like there are lots of reasons like I the, the term I use is a complex cascading system so think you know the high the ridiculous levels of inequality the yeah. uh, you know the, the the destruction of you know the natural world um, you know there's the, the hyperpartisanship the of the media environment, like there's a, there's a bunch of different things. But if I were to pick two, I mean, I would say the fact that America is going to become a majority minority country by 2040, and that tends in other countries to produce large amounts of political violence. And then the what, fact what, what that, is that, you know, what is that what does that mean? A minority majority country? What is that? It means that it'll be large. It'll, the, um, white people will be less than 50 percent of the country. So okay, it will be yeah. the majority of it, the majority of the population will be made up of minorities, yeah. um, and there there will not be a dominant um, ethnicity anymore. You know, one of the this happens all over the world when dominant ethnicities lose their power. There tends to be violence. It's not it's not just an American phenomenon. It happens in Africa. It happens all over the Middle East. It, it certainly happened in India before. So you know that that's um, that's part of it. The other the other part is that you know their democratic system is in breakdown. And can not, you know, by several measures, can't really be considered a complete democracy anymore. And that process is, you know, that process is continuous. That process is really going to get worse as time goes on. Oh, speaking of Stephen Marr, she's the author of the new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Uh, we started out at the start of this, Stephen. I mentioned the January 6th. Uh, storming of the Capitol in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. What did you, what went through your mind when you saw that unfold on on that fateful day? Mm-hmm. Were you thinking in your mind like, "Oh my goodness, this is it. This is what I w- this is what I've been talking about." 
Well, I mean, I did have to cut a chapter of my book. I mean, that's probably the, that, like that's the least possible effect of that book. But that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, I got to cut <laughs> that chapter out. Um, but the, you know, that that is um, that seems to me like I, I totally knew that was coming. Um, like, I don't I don't think you have to talk to a lot of people in this movement to understand that that's that was underway, and also to understand that uh, you know more events like that are coming. And also, it's not. Like to me, it wasn't a shocking event because there was already Charlottesville. There was already there was already a lot of um, you know preaching of violence from from the hard right. So yeah, I mean, I I think of that as sort of to me what I think of it now is that it's sort of the um, the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center rather than the big one. Like I think it's a premonition of what's to come. I don't think it was I don't think it was a major event because it was you know it was not really organized and it was not particularly well armed right so you think that there's more of that type of thing coming but even like bigger yeah and well i mean that was not an insurrection like that's what it was called in the new york but like it it, like it's simply on a technical level it it really wasn't like there was no serious political program and there was no there was no military like they weren't really armed um and one thing about these hard right people is that they are deeply armed and that they are, they, yeah. they, they, you know, I've talked to people who have tanks, right? So like, um, tanks. And, they got and, tanks. And that, oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. But no, there's nothing they don't have. Um, but you know, like th- that, that kind of, um, th- that kind of event seems to me like where it's really armed, that'll be a much more serious encounter and it will be, yeah. it'll be much, much harder to deal with by, by the forces of us government. The reaction to your book, Stephen, has really been interesting, like, and there's been a lot of it. Like, I've read some reviews from people who say, like, this is right on. I, I agree with Stephen. I think this is where this is going. And then I, I see some other some other reviewers saying that this, I know the book seems alarmist, that this this is doesn't seem, maybe the, I don't think another civil war will happen. And, like, a lot of people have looked back at other periods of upheaval in the United States like, for example, in the, in the 1960s, the civil rights movements, mm-hmm. and we saw assassinations. Of, we saw the assassination of a president. We saw the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. And it seemed like at that time, the country was appeared maybe was on the edge of some kind of kind of civil war. Like, is this time similar to that? Or do you find like today is even like more dangerous in that period? Oh, in the 60s, way more dangerous than the 60s. I mean, one thing you have to remember about the 60s is that the institutions were still working in the 60s. So, you know, the Civil Rights Act passed with large bipartisan majorities in the House and Senate. Um, You had huge, you didn't have anywhere near the partisanship you have now. And also, like the size of the revolutionary movements in the 60s, like the Weathermen at its peak was a thousand members. And, you know, even the, the Black Panthers, which... You know, this is a debatable number, but the high end of that number for membership is about 10,000 people. So sovereign citizens, which are like a radical group that doesn't believe that the the 14th Amendment is legitimate and that therefore the entire U.S. state government, they they don't have to pay taxes, is the low end of that figure is 600,000. You know, and you have large groups of people in the United States, like many, it's very hard to get a number on it, but... I mean, I would say around 20, 20 percent believe in violence as a way of enacting their uh, their policies. I mean, you know, one survey said 33 percent. Now, that that was just a survey. So it's not the most reliable data. But, you know, there's 
there's only 20% of Americans believe their electoral system is fair, and then larger numbers of that believe that political violence is acceptable. So, you know, I know the 60s were very traumatic, and I, I don't mean to, you know, like 140 cities burned after MLK was assassinated. I'm not downplaying it at all. But the situation that we're in right now is much more serious than the 60s. Wow. Like much, um, much more prone to violence and much more uh, and much more and much harder to see a way out. Right. So even final question for you, like as we go forward here and we're watching events unfold in America, what are you looking for? Like, what do you anticipate will happen? Do you think we'll see more sort of acts of violence and political violence in the United States? Is that what you're anticipating? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's very hard. You know, no one knows what the actual outcomes will be. Like, yeah. you know, I have my predictions in the book that are sort of spelled out in these fictional scenarios, but the, the they're they're just guesses. Like, the, but the trends, like the underlying trends, are not guesses, and they are based on extremely strong models and and you know very thorough research. And yeah, the, those trends definitely point towards more violence. Um, you know, and you can already see this in a, in a number of ways. Uh, like, I, I think we sort of thought that the Trump years would be kind of the bad years and then we get out of them. But, you know, the, the violence that, against threats against, uh, uh, you know, politicians in the United States are up about 107 percent from 2020. Yeah. Um, like the violence is already growing. Um, so, yeah, like I, I think there definitely is more violence ahead. Okay, it's been fascinating to talk to you, Stephen. Congratulations on the book. It's sure getting a lot of attention. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure.